0: Well, this morning we continue our way through 1 Corinthians, and we're doing, as we said, kind of long steps through 1 Corinthians 15, though it it is worthy of, of uh, attention to every phrase, um, and the sermons are are to be found in every phrase Paul gives here, but as we've said, we've preached through 1 Corinthians 15 other times, and this time we're doing big chunks as we make our way through the book, and today we come to our third sermon in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. And Paul is in the midst of this argument. We know that the broad theme that we've been thinking about in 1 Corinthians is that line from Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that the Corinthians are sliding into Corinthianizing. They're they're sliding, they're, they're thinking like Greeks and Romans, they're thinking like Corinthians, And not like Christians. And we confess that this is something we're prone to do. It's very natural for us to think as Americans. It's, it's obvious to see their Corinthian thinking and saying, Oh, come on. You know, Paul's arguments are so obvious. But what about for us? Where, where are the ways in which we think primarily like Americans and then try to fit that into our Christianity rather than approaching the issues of life? Uh, whether they be even things like lawsuits in this chapter, you know, how we how we handle our rights and our privileges, uh, how we love one another, how we handle our gifts, how we handle our relationships, how we handle the Eucharist, how we handle wisdom and truth-seeking, and all these kinds of things that Paul's been dealing with in Corinth, how do we handle them first as Christians, that our Christianity is the primary lens through which we view these things. And then apply that to our American scenario, and not the other, not the other way around. So Paul has been doing that. Most recently, we'll remember he's been speaking to the church, helping us think through the Corinthians, help them think through what it means to be a body, what it means to use their gifts, what are the, the 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 primary gifts, even that of love, which is to color and shape everything. And now he's launched in, and if you will, in this last little punch. Uh, in 1 Corinthians into this amazing, what is for us, just an amazing chapter on the resurrection. But for Paul, it's an argument he's making with them. He holds, if you will, the best to last, maybe the most significant to last, that there are these false teachers who are teaching that there is no such thing as the resurrection. And Paul is confronting them because the Corinthians are listening to these teachers. These teachers are making sense to them. Again, they're tapping into their Greek way of thinking then of course there would be no resurrection because the who would want this body? <laughs> the, body the body crumbles and fall, falls apart. And what the Greeks believed is that it will be liberation on the day of death, that our bodies will go away finally, and then the, the, the soul will be released from its prison house and fly free. And so these teachers are coming in and teaching something very similar, that no, there is no such thing as resurrection. And the Corinthians are giving ear to this. And this is infuriating Paul, who then, as we've already said, lays out the implications for them. Hey, if you say there's no resurrection, then let me just explain to you what that means. if there's no resurrection, then it means this and this and this. Then Jesus hasn't raised from the dead. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then you're still in your sin. Your faith is in vain. I'm a false prophet. You know, he just works it all the way through. And we, of all people, are most to be pitied. And... I'm not just asking you to believe it because of the logical consequences. Hey, if if the logical consequences of truth are bad, it is what it is. I don't change my beliefs because I don't like the logical consequences of something. But to bolster his argument, of course, he says, and not only is do you see the logical consequences of denying that Christ was raised, but I'll just tell you. In fact, he is raised. and And I saw him. And, and he appeared to Peter and he appeared to James and he appeared to the 12 and he appeared to 500 all at once and and so I'm not just asking you to believe this because oh my goodness we don't want these bad consequences so let's change our presupposition but this this assumption is true that I'm calling on you to hold because and I can testify to it and not just me them and them and all those over there and most of them are still alive if you want to go ask them and so Paul's been working through that argument now today in verse 35 Paul, as he does in so many of his letters, he anticipates the questions. You know, (laughs) he he uh, he's. But some will say he's on there. Don't even please don't write to me about this. Let me. I'm just going to anticipate what you're going to say, and then I'll I'll deal with it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Um. But someone will say he probably had someone in mind. You know, and so Jim. You know, Jim's probably going to. When you read this, Jim's going to say, "Yeah, but how are they raised?" Um. And so he begins to uh, he begins to answer that. But someone will say. How are the dead raised up and with what, what body do they come? You, you, try to make, this is all, this is all, you're telling me these truths, but you're giving me no picture here, no sense of how this is all supposed to take place. And so Paul launches in again to this beautiful image. He, as as Mark uh, mentioned in his prayer, uh, the Lord gives us these, these analogies, these revelations. And it's a beautiful thing actually to contemplate. Right. When you believe that this world is not just a big cosmic accident that has a couple convenient analogies embedded in it. When you believe, in fact, that the God of heaven and earth, the God who gave us the scriptures, the God who sent his son as the incarnate word, that that God created the cosmos, then you will believe that it is charged with revelation. Right? It, like, like the revelation of God is oozing out of it all the time. Right? It's just, it, it's constantly revealing. It's not that there are convenient analogies. The analogies are there because God embedded them into his created order so that wherever you look, the grand truth is being reinforced in the little things like yeast and mustard seeds and trees and rivers. And stars and bodies, as we've already seen. I mean, wherever you look, there's a sermon being preached if you have ears to hear it, right? Even if you look up at the heavens, there's there's a choir up there. They're they're singing, they're declaring the glory of God. It's just that we've we've gone tone-deaf. We've 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 gotten so used to living in that in the house, if you will. You know, I, I use the analogy that when I was growing up, we had in our, in our kitchen one of those old farm clocks, you know, the, you know, had the, the pendulum on the tick. And, you know, you live in the house for 15 years and you can't hear it anymore. And I remember, I remember a, a specific moment sitting in the living room and trying to make myself hear it, like closing my eyes and trying to hear the TikTok and having to work at it. And then all of a sudden, boom, I got it. You know, but it was like, it sounds ridiculous to say you're trying to hear something that's very obvious sound, but it, it was my brain had so white noised it. You know, it just kind of relegated it off to the background. So I'm not distracted by it, I guess, that I actually had to work to hear it. And the music of the spheres, the, the heavenly choir of the, of the stars, uh, that are singing the glory and grandeur of God, um, is something we're tone up to. And the same thing is true of, of harvest, you know, of, of sowing and reaping. It's like, it's a sermon right there, as is the change of the seasons. We know this, but, it becomes just, no, it's the way the world, it's just the way the world works. And yeah, if I have to, I can work to find an analogy. But no, for Paul, these things are embedded within, uh, in, in creation themselves, I- itself. And so he turns now to this metaphor, and maybe metaphor is not even good. It's, it's an illustration. Um, it's a metaphor, but it's also just really an analogy, an illustration of what's happening. So, the person asks in this rhetorical question, how are the dead raised up? And with what body will they come? And then Paul responds to this, this hypothetical person who he probably knows exactly who it is. Foolish one! Um, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases and to each seed its own body. Okay, so Paul, just in this, you're asking a, you think you're asking this complex, abstract question. Try to explain to me how this whole thing works, resurrection from the dead and bodies, and what kind of body are we going to have? And Paul goes right back to harvest, re- sowing and reaping. And it is worth paying attention now. You will, I hope you'll never think about sowing and reaping the same. Now that you hear what Paul says about it, in order for something to be what it is intended to be, in order for something to find its fulfillment, the Greek word for that is telos. You know, it's telos. It's design. It's end. End in the same way we use it in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? It's not like, what's the end? It's, it's the purpose. What was he made for? Well, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But in order for something to find its end, according to Paul, it must die. Now that alone, that thought alone is worth contemplating. In order for a seed to reach its telos, a seed does not exist for its seedness. A seed exists to become something grand. An acorn doesn't exist to, to, to be an amazing acorn. An acorn exists, it turns out, to die. It must, it must fall into the earth and die. And when it does, it grows into the thing it was meant to be, an oak tree. I mean, Jesus made this point in John chapter 12. And it's, it's right at the time when he is right. He, he's feeling it. The, the, the sweat of blood is right there beneath the skin. Now, I mean, it, it, he's feeling, in fact, in John 12, you'll remember he actually cries out, my soul is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. No, it was for this hour that I've come. Like, this is what, this is as a seed. This is what I'm here for. But boy, he's, the 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 wine press of of wrath is is already beginning to to crush him. He's feeling it, right? My soul is troubled, and the disciples are thrown off, right? Because he says, "Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified." But what shall I say? You know, but my soul is troubled, and they they just can't. Like, if if now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, why why are you so troubled? Like that seems like hurrah! <laughs> like let's you know, but but. He he knows what's coming. And then he uses the same image. He goes, I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls to the earth and dies, it will bear much fruit. I, I'm, I'm a seed, and as such, I must go into the earth and die. And only then, only then, will I be a life giver. Only then will there be much fruit. And of course, we are the fruit of that death and resurrection. But if Jesus does not die, if Jesus does not go into the earth, if you will, then he remains alone. And Paul is picking up on that. Now, again, I think we need to think through what that means for us because the pattern in, it's not merely that Jesus did it. And yes, we all benefit from it. We do. But the way that we benefit from it, it turns out in 1 Corinthians 15 is you will die. And death, that great enemy, that last enemy, that awful enemy, it turns out, and we'll spend time on this when I get back in a couple weeks you know, that beautiful passage that was read at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, death itself gets swallowed up in victory because it turns out that when death does its awful, evil work on us, the end result is not victory for death, but the new life that bursts forth from it. Go ahead, death, kill the seed. The result will be a harvest of grain. Go ahead, death, kill the the acorn. The result will be an oak tree. Right, all that death can do is bring the seed to its telos. That's that is death being swallowed up in victory, and therefore the great enemy that we dread. And I, I, I get it. I, even Jesus, right? I'm I'm not. I don't. I don't blow off the, uh, the 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 trouble that death brings to us. The you know the 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 pressing of death that it brings to us. It's it's an enemy. It, it, Jesus himself, though he was also bearing the wrath of god of course but but there 's a model there that okay death is death is a a difficult thing we don 't we don 't treat it lightly, but the good news is of course that death the, the worst it can do is bring you to your telos so Paul gives us this image, and Jesus himself has given it to us already now i'll give you i 'll give you one other picture of this too that that this image is not only just here in Paul or going back to the words of Jesus, but it turns out if we have eyes to see it, we will see it in the very beginning as well. That if we go back to the first pages of the scripture, what do we find there? We find Adam. And what's the problem with Adam? Aha, he's alone. Right? And in and, and the Lord even comes and he says to Adam, and we've talked about this, hey, it's not good. This is not good. <laughs> the first thing that's not good within the created order is not sin. The first thing that's not good is that Adam is alone. And God created Adam alone, just like he creates seed. And seed, if you will, is alone. But what does it take for Adam to bear fruit? What does it take for Adam not to be alone? And he's put to sleep, right? I mean, if, if it's not a death, and I'm not sure it's not a death, to be honest with you, I don't know what it is. It just says he put him to sleep. But, you know, we've all put dogs to sleep too. It's a nice way of saying something, you know. It's like, I don't know if he just went out for a snooze or whether he's dead. Pre-fall death, I don't know. But he put him down. And what was the result? When he woke up, was he still alone? He was put to sleep. But when he woke up, there were two. When he woke up, it was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There was a completeness. There was a wholeness. Adam was a new man now because he he was whole. He was united to Eve. Just as Christ, when he was put to sleep and buried in the earth, woke up and his bride was also created, if you will, from his wounded side. But the pattern is there, whether it's in Adam or in Christ, and the confidence for Paul is there for him and also for us. Do you see it in the sowing and the reaping? The seed is alone. It must die. And when it dies in the earth, then it will bear much fruit. So there's the pattern that he gives to us. Then he launches into this business about bodies, that the thing that is sown doesn't just come out of the earth. You know, it's not like you, you bury a seed and then a seed pops out. You bury the seed and a stalk of wheat grows out. A different body. It's, it's, it, they're, they're organically linked. It's just a different body. And again, I I think you see that with Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam, if you will, is, is put to sleep and then he wakes up and there's Eve. It's like Adam, but not quite (laughs) a little, little different. And so the image here is for us. And he launches into this business about bodies in verse 38. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. And then he, he now he goes into other metaphors. You you see that God gives different bodies, even within the created order. You see this, not all is the same. Uh uh, verse 39. All flesh is not the same, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another kind of flesh for animals, another fish, and another. For birds. And then of course you have celestial bodies and terrestrial ones. And so God makes all these different things. And so now he's going to take this, if you will, sort of horizontal diversity of bodies and he's going to flip it and make it a vertical difference of bodies. Just as you see the bodies of animals and the bodies of fish and the bodies of birds and the bodies of stars. So also we're going to see the body of mortal man and the body of immortal. Right, so just as you see the diversity of bodies there, you're going to see the diversity of bodies here. That's the, that's the argument and the analogy that he's making, and you're going to see that here in a second. But here's what's important to recognize, that each body has its own glory, right? The, the, the glory of this star differs from the glory of that star, and the glory of the sun differs from the glory of the moon. Now, the moon has its own glory. You say, well, well, this would be like uh, the the language about the body. You say, well, because the moon is not internally lit, you know, self illuminated, it's not glorious. Only the sun is glorious because the sun provides its own light. The moon is just a lump of rock in the sky that that reflects light. It's not glorious. The sun is glorious, but that's not what Paul says. No, no, no. The moon. Has it, the sun has its glory. The, the glory of the sun is its illumination, its, its brightness, its heat, its radiance. That's different than the glory of the moon. But the moon has its own glory. Right? The glory of the moon is a reflective glory. It's a soft glory. It does its own thing that's different from the sun, right? Again, here, here Paul making the argument he made in 1 Corinthians 12. It would be stupid if we said, well, because the whole body's not an eye, it's worthless. No, we don't want the ear to see. I need the ear to hear. That's what I need it to do. And if it will just do its job, we'll say, well done ear. You'll say, yeah, but the eye is really where it's at. No, I need the liver to do liver stuff, and I need the ear to do ear stuff, and I need the hands to do hand stuff. And the sun has its glory. And the moon has its glory, and the bird has its glory, and the grain of wheat has its glory. Each has a glory that God has given to it, and that's important. That's important in the argument that Paul is going to make because, again, he's going to take this horizontal diversity, and I'm using the language of horizontal and vertical just to give us some distinction. He's going to take this horizontal diversity of the the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the stars, the glory of the birds, the glory of the fish, and then he's going to zoom in on us and say the same with you. There is a glory of mortality. It has a glory. It's not It's not this body in its broken stages and you with all of your ailments and all of your problems and all of your frailties and all of your memory loss, you know, the stuff we remember and the stuff we forget and the stuff we've learned and the stuff we do. And our aging process and where we are in that process. All of that has its own glory. It's not that, well, it's not the heavenly body, therefore it has no glory. No, no, no. Just like the moon has a glory and the sun has a glory. Mortality has a glory. It's a much lesser glory, but it has a glory of its own. And so so Paul makes the argument in terms of glory. Now there's one glory of the sun. Verse 41, another glory of the moon, another glory of the star. So one star differs from another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, and now here he's going to do what I'm talking about, horizontal to now vertical. He's going to zoom in on one thing now. Instead of looking at stars and fish and birds, he's going to say, let's just talk about man and just kind of look at his or her transformation. And here's the transformation that have. Now he's going to take the seed metaphor or analogy and the glory business and kind of bring them together. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. But remember, what you sow is not what you reap in that sense. In one sense it is. If you sow wheat, you'll get wheat. But you sow a seed and you get a head of wheat. It's just abundant with fruit. You don't get one seed. You get a whole head of grain. So what you sow is what you reap on the one hand. But on the other hand, you don't sow a seed and get a seed. You sow a seed and you get a stalk, ahead of grain. So also here, in our bodies, it is with the resurrection. It is sown in corruption. You know what's going into the earth when Bill Spancher dies? A corruptible body. And the same with you. Corruption is going in the grave. Corruptible creation. Corruptible glory. This body is glorious. It's fallen, it's broken, but it's glorious. It's the image of God. And as a corruptible, it's a corruptible image, but it is nonetheless the image. Corruptible glory is going in the grave. And what's coming out of the grave is something you can't imagine. Right? What's coming out of the grave is incorruptible glory. Amen. And it's hard for you to understand what that is. It's hard for me to understand what that is. And Paul kind of leaves that. You do not, it has not yet been revealed to man what he shall become, but but it is going to be glorious. As Christ is, so shall you be. And and what is Christ now? Yes, I know what he was like there after his resurrection from the grave, but when you get, and I know it's a, it's a, it's a visionary image of him in in Revelation 1, when John hears the voice of the trumpet standing behind him, he turns to see the voice, and just this. I mean, it's an image that makes him fall dead before him. Not just because he's God, but because he's incorruptible glory. And it makes John fall dead before him. That's how you will be. I know it's hard to imagine, but that's how you will be. You're going to go into the grave as corruptible glory. You will come out as incorruptible glory, not just incorrupted, but incorruptible glory. So also with the resurrection, the body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. Dishonor means, I, I think, again, just another way of saying the way that we we crumble apart. We have to suffer the shame of aging. And by shame, it's not that there's shame in aging itself, but it's the it's the difficulties that we have to endure that come with, with uh, aging, especially in this fallen age. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glorious glory. It is sown in weakness, a weak glory, but it is raised in power. And again, just think of that image of Jesus in Revelation 1. And here he, now he brings it all home. It is sown a natural body, a natural glory, right? A created glory. From the dust. That's where he's going to go here in a second. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And by spiritual, here's where we have to do a little bit of work. For the Corinthians, that meant non-physical. That is not how Paul means it here. He just means filled with the Spirit right? Fully filled with the Spirit. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And now he's going to conclude, and I wrap up with this by saying, here, let me give it to you one more time as as if what goes into the ground and what comes out of the ground, and let's use Adam as the original and Christ as the result. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. One was alive. Think think the lesser now, like a grain of wheat. But the other became a life. It wasn't just alive. It's not like, well, Adam was alive, and then Jesus was alive. No, Adam was alive, but Jesus became a life-giver. It's like, remember when he tells the the woman at the well, hey, I'll I'll give you this water is living water. And it's one thing to receive living water. But then we're told, and then you will become a fountain of living water. Right? You, will streams and fountains of living water will flow out of you. I mean, that's where we're going. It starts with us receiving life, but then in Christ, it just goes to levels of glory that we can't contemplate, where we actually become means of life. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And again, that doesn't mean he wasn't physical. It just meant he was so filled with the spirit that the spirit, like a river of life, was flowing out of him and bringing in new life. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. Okay, and so he's saying, you see, it's not Jesus and then Adam, it's Adam and then Jesus, and so it's also going to be with you, your natural body. You're going to have to go through this. You're going to have to live through the dishonor, the weakness, the corruptibility of this, of this Adamic life, of this pre-glory life, the moon life, and then we'll deal with the sun glory. And then you get Christ. And so he brings it home. The first man was of the earth, natural. Right? The first was of the earth, natural. He was dust, made of the dust. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. Right? We all go the way of the dust. With dust you came to dust you will return. But people have said, well, there's nothing wrong with dust. Exactly right. Dust is glorious. Right? It's not as glorious as spirit. Dust has its own glory. Just like this body has its own glory. There's a glory to dirt. <laughs> glory to dust. So be encouraged, all right? You're dirt, but hey, dirt can, dirt can be great too. As was the man of the dust, so also are those made of the dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, right? Here I am right here. You're looking at him. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, we have to leave there and we'll conclude it when I get back. But Paul just leaves us by imagining what it is to be so united to Christ that when we go into the earth like a seed and come out that we will be like the God-man. I will not be God. But I will be like the God-man. I will be as He is. Christ, the Lord, so also shall you be. Now, brothers and sisters, if you've got a rough week coming up, that's worth contemplating. If you're struggling with you know, your own weakness, your own frailty, your own corruptibility, right? our own suffering, our own fears and anxieties, that's worth contemplating. Your life is a vapor. This, this dusty glory that you see in front of you is a wisp. And it's gone. But the good news is, when it goes, it will become something solid and something lasting and something incorruptible and something powerful and something unbelievably glorious. And that is our destiny. And that, I think, is enough to get us to Paul's conclusion, which again, because I'm going to be away two weeks, I'm not spoiling anything because let's face it, we forget stuff. That Paul concludes this chapter By saying, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. See, for Paul, that is what this truth leads to. You want to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? You need to contemplate this. Because the minute you realize that even death itself just transforms you from glory to capital G glory, let's go. I have nothing to fear, right? And just again, go back and read Romans 8. What can separate me? You know, all that. Well, who can condemn me? You know, Paul's just riding that wave of confidence that comes from contemplating such a glorious truth as that, as this. So may that be your comfort and your encouragement as we head into this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious good news. We thank you that you've made us glorious in Adam. Oh, but Father, it's a pale glory compared to what we will be in Christ. And so as we look ahead with great anticipation, may you keep us faithful in the midst of this glory, that we might do all things for your honor and for your glory. Help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For we know what will be, even if we don't understand all the details For we've seen it. We've heard the sermon preached every sowing and harvest season. We've seen it in the sun and the moon and the stars. And so, Father, give us confidence to believe it and faithfulness to live it out, we pray. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.